Howdy folks, this is Jimmy Aiken, and I wanted to let you know about a special offer. When you become a patron of the Cordial Catholic Podcast at $8 or more a month, Keith will send you a copy of my new book, The Bible is a Catholic Book. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic. This is a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one singular idea. To help undo the misinformation, the the rumors, the misunderstandings that many people have about Catholicism. As I was asking questions about my faith as a non-Catholic Christian, as I was digging deeper into the history of Christianity and the origins of the Bible and the sacraments, I realized that as I approached Catholicism, often the things that I knew about it, I thought I knew about it, were completely backwards. In fact, the Catholics around me seemed to know no better than I did. It was a lot of misinformation going around. This podcast aims to fill in that giant gap. We have real Catholic conversations with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by my favorite Catholic apologist, Jimmy Aiken from Catholic Answers. Jimmy's new book, The Bible is a Catholic Book, is a fantastic explanation of where the Bible came from, how some books got in and some books were left out, how Catholics understand the Bible, and the history, the tradition of how the Bible was read and should be read. We dig way deep into some very fascinating topics that, as a non-Catholic Christian, would have given me, and in fact did give me when I found these things out, enormous pause, and some cause for concern. But that's what this podcast is all about, to bring a Catholic view to these topics that are sometimes misunderstood by Catholics and non-Catholics alike. It's a great conversation. I know you're going to love it. Have you guys heard of Obramagau? I heard about it recently in a different podcast I was listening to. But this is the tiny, kind of obscure town in Germany, where in 1633, To try and escape the ravages of the bubonic plague, residents prayed that if they were cured of bubonic plague, if the plague passed their town by, they would every ten years perform a passion play, memorializing the last days of Jesus' life on earth. Well, the plague passed them by, deaths dwindled, and every 10 years, as a result, ever since, they've been performing an enormous, growing passion play. Over 2,000 people from the town are involved. In fact, the whole town transforms, and more residents than even live in the town descend on this small town every 10 years to watch this enormous passion play. Select international tours and cruises, A partner of this podcast is offering a whole range of ways to get there in the 2020 Passion Play year. You've got to check this out at selectinternationaltours.com slash cordial. There are all kinds of different ways to get there, different pilgrimages, different cruises, different trips that end you up in Obramagao for this enormous Passion Play. It looks really, really cool. And hey, while you're there on this site, make sure you sign up for an email update if there are any cruises or pilgrimages that you are interested in. 
I have their word they will not spam you. But if any cruises are updated with changes of any kind, or there are new offerings or cruises or tours or pilgrimages you are interested in, you will get an email, so you will not miss out. It's a fantastic idea, and again, I have their word. They will not spam you. And hey, if they do, let me know. That's selectinternationaltours.com slash cordial. Please visit and help support this show by supporting their website and their amazing pilgrimage and tour company. These guys are the real deal. Selectinternationaltours.com slash cordial. You can also support this show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. If you give $8 or more a month, I can send you a copy of Jimmy Aiken's new book. I think you're going to want this book after hearing him on the show. It's a fantastic book. I think truly one of the best, if not the best, overview, introduction about how to read the Bible, how to understand the origins, the history of the Bible from a Catholic perspective. It's fantastic. $8 or more a month as a sponsor of this show not only helps me to continue to do this amazing work I am doing, but I can send you as a thank you a copy of this book. But any sponsor, even $1 a month or more, is helpful and gets you access to a new behind-the-scenes podcast that I am doing related to this show. I'll give you behind-the-scenes peeks on upcoming guests, other conversations we've had, some updates, and all kinds of things. Please consider supporting this show and the work we're doing here. Even $1 a month helps. That's patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Thank you so much to those who are already supporting the show. You guys are awesome. You guys are my team. And it means so much that people would not only listen to this show, but that would give time, money, a commitment to supporting this work as well. I've said it a lot, and it's true. I am so humbled to be able to do this work. Some days it seems like a dream. I hope that it's impactful for you. I hope that it's helpful for you in your faith walk, and I hope that God continues to bless this ministry. Please pray for me as I pray for you. Now, without any further ado, here's my wonderful conversation with Jimmy Aiken. Please listen and enjoy. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy is the senior apologist at Catholic Answers. He is a highly sought-after speaker, the host of the popular podcast Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, one of my favorite podcasts, and the author of some of the most fantastic apologetic books you can get your hands on, including The Fathers Know Best, A Daily Defense, 365 Plus One Days to Becoming a Better Apologist, Teaching with Authority, and his latest, The Bible is a Catholic Book. Jimmy, I'm so excited to welcome you back to the show. Hello, thanks for being here, and welcome back. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. You know, I want to say, and I'm not just going to say this because you're paying me, because you're not, but mm -hmm. your, latest, your latest book, The Bible is a Catholic Book, is, I think, just 
such a fantastic. I I don't want to say the fantastic, the most fantastic, because I haven't read every single book that's been written on the Bible in the particular format that, that you've written this. But you've done such a fantastic job in less than two hundred pages. It's so concise you know, explaining everything that a person would need to know about the history of the Bible, how it's put together, how to read it, how to understand it, its place in, in the church. Uh, you need to, I need to give you enormous congratulations because it is simply a, a fantastic book and a wonderful accomplishment. Well, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to write. Uh, Catholic Answers wanted to have a book that would be very easy for people to read, so I, uh, you know, made a point of avoiding highfalutin language and made sure I explained, you know, the meaning of the terms that I did have to use, and I really wanted to focus on the story of how we got the Bible, because it's a fascinating history. People who, you know, go to church, they hear the Bible read at church, but most people don't have a real sense of how it came to be, and it's a wonderful and amazing story that I wanted to share with people, and so it was a lot of fun writing the book. Yeah, and you, you have seem to have packed everything you need to know about it into that book, and it's it's fantastic. Um, so, your book does an excellent job uh, of explaining how the Bible all came together, like mm-hmm. I said, and and even back to writing and, and the collecting of the Old Testament scriptures. But where I want to start with you today, if I can, is with Jesus, because uh-huh. Jesus was born, he died, was resurrected and ascended to heaven, he founded a church, but he didn't write anything. He didn't even tell his apostles to write anything. And he didn't tell them to collect writings together in a book called the Bible. So, in that respect, where did the Bible, after Jesus left, come from? Well, uh, most of it had already been written by his time. Uh, What we now call the Old Testament was already in existence. And it had been written over a period of about a thousand years uh, prior to the time of Christ. There wasn't, for most Jews at the time, there wasn't a closed canon. So that means most Jews didn't have a closed, fixed list of exactly which books they counted as Scripture. Um, Instead, there were different schools of thought among different groups of Jews about exactly which books uh, were scriptural, and even those different schools of thought had some flexibility. You had different groups that, uh, you know, different individuals within a, a group would have somewhat different opinions about exactly which books were scripture. And then uh, after the Christian message began to spread, you had the apostles uh, preaching and teaching from the major Greek translation of the Bible at the time, which was known as the Septuagint, and they eventually began writing down uh, new books of Scripture. That's something that started to happen by about the year 50 AD, and so if you use the traditional uh, reckoning of the crucifixion as occurring in April of AD 33, which is the, the date that I think the evidence best supports, then that means that the first books of the New Testament began to be written by about 17 years, maybe 15 years after the crucifixion. And so for all that time, all of that new revelation that had been given by Jesus and also to the apostles by the Holy Spirit, all of that new revelation was passed down in oral form rather than in scriptural form. And it's one of the things that underlines the role of apostolic tradition in oral form for us, because it was considered authoritative for the faith of Christians at the time. 
Yeah, so what you're saying is in that time period between these things happening, Christ's death and crucifixion, his resurrection, between that time and, and, and the Bible actually being written down, something had to, had to exist. Yeah, and and this was not a new situation because oral tradition had always been very important for one reason, because most people were not literate. Uh, you'll sometimes hear claims made that that wasn't the case in Jewish circles, that like all Jewish boys were sent to Hebrew school where they learned to read Hebrew, but the evidence does not support that. Um, we have... Uh, significant indications that the level of literacy was about the same among Jews as it was among Greeks and Romans, and only about 10 to 20 percent of people were functionally literate by modern standards. More people than that could like maybe write their name or write a receipt. If they were selling something, they could write a receipt for it. But that was about it. Um, and so reading was a special uh, skill that only a few people had, and so most people got their information exclusively orally. And absolutely all people got their information exclusively orally before a certain point in history, because writing is not as old as the human race. Um, we know when writing began. It began about 5,000 years ago, and um, it was invented first by the Mesopotamians, and then uh, about a little before the year 3000 BC. And then the Egyptians invented their famous hieroglyphs uh, a little bit after the Mesopotamians did. And so we've really only had writing for uh, 5,000 years, and even then it didn't catch on everywhere. The earliest Hebrew writing we have only goes back to about the year 1000 AD, uh, 1000 BC. So before 1000 BC, God had revealed himself to people, but knowledge of God was passed down exclusively in oral form, not in scriptural form. Well, that leads me right into my second question, I think, for you, which is the idea of tradition and the Bible. And this, in fact, was a, a major catalyst for my own conversion to Catholicism. And It was when an evangelical pastor I was working for asked me, what's more important, tradition or the Bible? And now, I think there are many ways to answer this kind of question, but at the time, I would have thought that tradition would have been a very negative thing. But I came to realize that without tradition, there there couldn't have been a Bible. Is that fair to say? Yeah, in fact, it's even fair to say, so we, we kind of have to, for people who, who may not be familiar with the roots of the word tradition, we should explain where it comes from. Um, it comes from uh, the Latin equivalent. It's a Latin-based word, and tradition or traditio in Latin, refers to whatever has been handed down or handed on from one person to another. It's from the uh, the verb tradire, which means to hand over or hand on. And so any information that has been handed on from one person to another is a form of tradition. It, the question is then, what's the means by which it's handed on? And for most of human history, information has been handed on almost exclusively orally. But uh, it can also be handed on in written form, and in the case of Scripture, that writing was superintended by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just written, it's also divinely inspired writing. And that's what separates Scripture from all other writings, is it's divinely inspired. But you could therefore consider, since the Scriptures themselves have been handed down to us, and in fact, literally... Uh, for most people, someone at some point in their lives handed them their first Bible, and it was a literal act of traditioning 
the Bible over to someone. You can think of Scripture as simply that portion of tradition that's written under divine inspiration. Uh, other uh, other tradition can be passed down orally or even in writing, like the writings of the Church Fathers. The difference between Scripture and all other tradition is that Scripture is divinely inspired. And so you can even consider uh, tradition as the more fundamental reality, the passing on of information, a subset of which is passed on under divine inspiration, and that is Scripture. Yeah, and that's a really interesting eye-opening, for me at least, it would have been, and it was when that question was first posed to me, because, I mean, I kind of assumed that despite going to Bible studies and and being in church for a very long time at that point, I I kind of assumed that the Bible had fallen from the sky complete and intact and and the way that it was, and like you say, then handed on to me in this leather-bound form I, I had no understanding of the tradition that put that Bible together and the, that accepted those books and, and collected those books. And your your book, The Bible is a Catholic Book, does a fantastic job in explaining how all those things came together and how it was this larger tradition of the church that guided uh, the that guided the church to mm-hmm. to put those books together in in the order I mean, to make the table of contents of yeah. the bible in other words so i something you point out in this book that i thought was very profound um you talked about how the invention of the printing press um changed the landscape of christianity and you mentioned how people tend to jump on modern technology without really realizing the negative ramifications. And, I mean, this is plainly obvious in today's culture with smartphones and social media. Um, you know, we, we have, have dove into these things, we dive into these things without really thinking through what, it's going, what it means to share all of our information with, with these giant corporations sometimes. But I wonder what the ramifications for a new technology like the printing press were, and how did that impact how Christians understood the Bible? Well, it was, uh, it, it was a revolutionary technology, and oftentimes uh, historians of technology will talk about something they call creative destruction. Uh, when you have a new technology emerge, it creates new possibilities, but it also tends to destroy existing uh, social th- things in society, existing social realities. And uh, one of the things it, that happened with the invention of the printing press was it dramatically lowered the price of books, because up to that point in history, for all of previous human history, every single book that a person might have had to be hand copied. You had someone had to personally write every letter of every word on every page of a book. And that meant a, a huge investment of time. So books prior to the invention of the printing press were fantastically expensive. Um, really uh, is something and it was even worse in the ancient world because they didn't have paper. Uh, paper is something that we can manufacture, you know, once you have the right equipment, you can manufacture 
thousands of sheets of paper at once. But in the ancient world, not only did every book have to be handwritten, every page of every book had to be produced by a laborious process. Um, In the ancient world, the two most common writing materials were parchment, which was made of animal skins, and papyrus, which was made from a reed that grew in Egypt. In order to make parchment, what you would need to do is first grow an animal and raise it to its uh, sufficiently large size that you could make uh, writing material out of its skin. Then you killed the animal and skinned it. Then you had to stretch the skins out so that they would become a reasonably flat surface. You also had to scrape the hair off of one side, and you typically had to bleach it, and you had to cut it into shape to make a page uh, that you could write on. And so all of that meant papyrus was... uh, Parchment was going to be very expensive. Every sheet of it had a real cost to it. And uh, the process with papyrus wasn't much less expensive because you had to grow the reeds, which only grew in certain climates. You know, you couldn't grow papyrus in Scandinavia, for example. Um, And then once the reed grew, you had to cut it open and slice its innards into strips, which you would then weave together and press down to get the starch in the pulp. It's kind of like the inside of a potato. You know, it's got all this starch in it. And you'd press it down so that the uh, starch would serve as a kind of natural glue to glue the strips of papyrus together to make a page, which you then have to cut and so forth. And so not only did people have to um, handwrite everything, they also had to have these handmade pieces of writing material, which just meant that books were even more expensive. And it's fascinating to look at some of the calculations that, um, you know, it, that you can do about, well, how, how roughly how expensive would these have been for people? And you find out things like um, Paul's letter to the Romans— in order for him to pay a scribe, and we know he used scribes. In fact, we even know who the scribe was for Romans. It was a gentleman named Tertius. Um, But in order to pay a scribe to, to produce a copy of Romans to send to Rome and another copy to retain for his own records, Paul would have had to spend more than the equivalent of more than $2,000 just for Romans. And it's a little short book. It's only 16 chapters long. So um, that gives you a sense of how uh, expensive books were, and something like a complete Bible would have been, you know, just tens or even—I haven't run the exact calculation, but it could be easily, you know, uh, more than $100,000. And so it was out of the reach of ordinary individuals who couldn't read it anyway, but it was just way out of their economic reach. The only people who could really afford books in the ancient world were either the wealthy or institutions like churches or monasteries could pool their resources and afford complete Bibles, but individuals just could not. And all of that changed with the invention of the printing press. At the time, the printing press uh, was invented in the 1400s, in the 1450s, by uh, the metallurgist Johannes Gutenberg. Uh, Paper was beginning to be used, um, although some of the Gutenberg Bibles that he printed actually are on uh, parchment. But the invention of paper was, was cheaper 
than papyrus and parchment, so that helped bring the cost down. And then once you've used movable type to set the type for a given page, you can run off, you know, dozens or hundreds of copies of it quickly as opposed to handwriting each page. So you don't have to invest nearly as much time per page. And that brought the cost of books down dramatically. And so they began to be affordable by people who weren't wealthy, by people who were in the middle class. Of course, the poor still couldn't afford them. But people who were in the middle class, which was emerging, could afford them. And that led to a bunch of excitement in certain circles. Uh, I don't think it's any accident that the Protestant reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and people like that were middle class people who got excited about the Bible and said, wow, we could in principle give everybody a copy of this and everybody could read it for himself and we could do theology without having to rely on the church and without having to rely on tradition. Everyone could just read the Bible for himself. And so I think it's no accident that Sola Scriptura was invented a few decades after the invention of the printing press, whereas prior to that time in God's in history, um, it would have been completely unthinkable to say everyone should have his own Bible and read it for himself and decide what it means. That's something that never would have been imaginable uh, prior to this point in history. And that reveals something, I think, very important, because God doesn't ask people to do the impossible. And so if this would not have been possible from the beginning of the Christian age, then it was not part of God's plan from the beginning of the Christian age. Yet the faith has been delivered to us, as Jude says, once for all. And so any necessary principles of interpretation have been there from the beginning, and if sola scriptura was not one of those principles, it's not part of the Christian faith. That's such an interesting thing to underscore. And I've, you know, I wrote an article, I started a blog to kind of psychologically and spiritually work out my conversion process. And one of the early articles I wrote was me unpacking that that, that idea that you've just talked about. I think I called the article um, Protestantism is a system designed to fail because I thought, th- I, I thought if this wasn't something that was from the beginning of Christianity a principle of how to understand our faith, well, well how can it just suddenly be introduced? Um, and then the result I saw was a system that was completely breaking apart if everyone's just interpreting their own Bible. So why don't you unpack for us what exactly sola scriptura means. And then maybe, I know in your book you do this so succinctly, and I think this is probably uh, a matter of experience. You've talked about these things for for decades now, Mm -hmm. and you're so good at succinctly uh, pointing out some of the glaring problems with something like Sola Scriptura. So you've mentioned that it's the idea that everyone should have their own Bible and interpret it. Can you unpack that for a bit for us? And then maybe some of the major uh, issues yeah, with that. Sure. So, um, Sola Scriptura is something that is understood somewhat differently in different Protestant groups. In that regard, it's like virtually everything else. I mean, you have different—sometimes Catholic apologists will make the mistake of talking about the Protestant position as if there's only one, and that's always a mistake because— 
Protestantism is quite a theologically diverse movement, and there is almost nothing on which there is a single uniquely Protestant position. Even things like sola scriptura and sola fide, which are considered founding principles of the Reformation, are understood differently by different groups of Protestants. Um, For example, uh, in the case of sola scriptura, you will have... um, the claim made that Scripture alone should be used when determining doctrine and practice. And that gets understood in some circles to mean that you really just should look only at the Bible and and nothing else. Um, you'll even have uh, you'll even have frequently pastors and preachers saying, don't believe me, check it out for yourself, ignore what I'm saying, this is just an idea starter, but read the Bible for yourself, decide what you think. Um, then you'll have Protestants who see a positive value for tradition, and they will say, okay, we do need to be able to prove something from Scripture, but that doesn't mean we should read it out of context of, say, our knowledge of how ancient Greek works, or how Christians have traditionally understood it under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that even though those alternative sources may not be as authoritative as Scripture, that doesn't mean they have no authoritative role or no guiding role in the process of of, of understanding Scripture. You'll also have Protestants who will um, say that sola scriptura means that we need to be able to prove something from Scripture in a kind of rigorous way, and if you can't prove it, then you should not believe it or do it. And an example of a movement that has this kind of rigorous understanding of Sola Scriptura at times is the uh, Church of Christ movement, the Stone-Campbell movement, because many of their churches will say things like, well, in the New Testament, we don't have any record of churches here on earth using musical instruments. We know that uh, musical instruments were used in the temple, and we know that they're depicted as being used in heaven, in the heavenly worship, but we don't have any record of a New Testament era church using a musical instrument, and therefore churches should have only a cappella singing. Uh, they should not use have organs or pianos or anything else, um, because we can't show a positive warrant for that from the New Testament. Others would say, well, okay, dudes, none of the New Testament books claim to offer us a manual for every detail of church's life, and given that musical instruments were used in the temple and are depicted as being used in heaven, that gives us something of a scriptural warrant here. Um and so some would say, well, we have enough scriptural warrant, even though we don't have an explicit statement, but by implication, this should be okay. And then you'll have an even less restrictive um, application of Sola Scriptura, where people will say, well, okay, it doesn't say you can or must use them, but neither does it say you can't. So it's consistent with Scripture. It's not forbidden by Scripture, and so you can use it on that ground. And anything that's not forbidden is permitted. And so uh, you have a range of different applications of how Sola Scriptura is supposed to work. There are further complications when you look at things like the Charismatic Pentecostal movement in Protestantism, where you have some people, or Seventh day Adventism, where you have some people saying God still gives revelation in some form 
and that needs to be taken into account when we're reading Scripture. You even have some groups that really have kind of strayed beyond sola scriptura that would say God still gives apostles and and could even write scripture today. Yeah, so I guess this is one of this is one of those from our last conversation, uh, our last question. I guess one of these negative ramifications of the printing press of jumping into this technology. Suddenly, everybody uh, or more people, still not the poor, still middle class or more wealthy class thing, can have a copy of their Bible. And then this idea of this is all we need to understand our faith, this this develops. So then what are some of the challenges of that? I mean, I, I, I think just by listing all the different ways of understanding the principle of sola scriptura, that in itself demonstrates a, a major challenge. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the major challenges that this um, new this new approach to understanding the Christian faith uh, posed and we could say continue to pose? Well, um, as, as we've just illustrated, there are different versions of the doctrine of sola scriptura. It gets interpreted in different ways. And so the question is, well, which one is right? If any of them is right, which one is it? Uh, Do we do the Stone-Campbell thing? Do we do the Pentecostal thing? Do we do something that gives some weight to tradition? You know, how how do we figure out the shape of the doctrine of sola scriptura? And, well, if we're going to use sola scriptura to figure out our doctrine, then we're going to need to use sola scriptura to figure out the doctrine of sola scriptura. So you'd want to look at scripture to say, well, which of these versions of sola scriptura is best supported by the biblical data? And the problem is none of them. Uh, When you read the Bible, uh, and that is not just Old Testament, but New Testament as well, you don't find any verses that either singularly or collectively, either by explicit statement or by implication, teach the doctrine of sola scriptura. Um, And that's a big problem for sola scriptura, because if you have to, even on a minimal version of sola scriptura, you have to be able to prove something by scripture, well, then you're going to have to prove sola scriptura itself by Scripture. You're going to need verses that either say or imply we should form our belief and practice as Christians by Scripture alone. Nothing comes close to saying that. Um, It's also clear that Sola Scriptura was not a principle that was in operation in the biblical era. Um, If you look at how the uh, New Testament authors discuss things that are authoritative for the faith of the early Christian movement, you'll find them appealing to Old Testament scriptures, uh, and, and they clearly attribute authority to the Old Testament scriptures, so that's not in question. They do treat these scriptures as authoritative. Um, and even you get a couple of passages in the New Testament that talk about other New Testament books as scripture. There's a, a passage where Paul gives a quotation uh, that's only found in the Gospel of Luke, and he refers to it as coming from Scripture, so it seems he regarded the Gospel of Luke as Scripture. And there's another passage where Peter refers to the letters of Paul as being among the Scriptures, and so you have you know, a recognition that Paul's letters are Scripture, and so you have a recognition of their authority as well, but that's not all. You also have 
indications in the New Testament that the New Testament authors regarded apostolic tradition as being authoritative. Uh, You have, for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul commends the Corinthians for keeping the traditions just as he delivered them to them. So he's talking about his oral preaching in the city of Corinth that imparted information to the Corinthians that was authoritative for their faith. It was the basis of their faith as Christians. And so, um, so he commends them for maintaining that. He also commands the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians, uh, he commands them to adhere to all of the traditions he's given them. And he specifically says, whether by word of mouth or by our letter, and he's referring there to 1 Corinthians, which he had previously written them. So he had spent like three weeks in Thessalonica before he got kicked out due to a riot. And in that time, he gave them a bunch of oral traditions, and then he later wrote them First Thessalonians, and he says, you need to adhere to all of these traditions, whether I get delivered them orally or in writing to you. And we thus see the New Testament authors treating both apostolic tradition in oral form and the written component of it as authoritative for the, for. Christian believers. And that's exactly what you'd expect, because before about AD 50, which is when First Thessalonians was written, there weren't any uh, books of the New Testament. I mean, maybe you could argue Galatians or James had been written by that point, but these are—but there was still, you know, over a decade, really more than a decade and a half, where There just was no New Testament scripture, and so oral tradition was clearly authoritative in this age. And that means that um, if you want to propose sola scriptura as applying in the post-apostolic age, you're going to need to find verses that indicate there's going to be a shift in how Christians form their doctrine. uh, For example, you might find verses that say things like, we apostles have agreed that we're going to write down every authoritative tradition in Scripture. So later on, after we're all gone, if something's not written in Scripture, you can safely ignore it. And we never find them saying that. Or they could say something like, well, even though this this oral tradition that we've been preaching to you, it's authoritative right now, it's going to lose its authority once we're all gone. And so you can, at that point, just read what we wrote and ignore everything else. You don't find anything in the New Testament saying anything remotely like that either. And so that means that uh, the paradigm that was in use in the New Testament age simply was not sola scriptura, and that the New Testament does not indicate the paradigm is supposed to change. So if the Christian faith was delivered once for all to the saints in the New Testament era, then we should continue to use the same principles that they did, and those principles included recognizing the authority of not only Scripture, but also tradition, if it comes from the apostles. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And you know, when I began as an evangelical digging into my Bible and looking for what I assumed were verses like you've just imagined would have to be in there, and not finding that. I mean, I came across a verse like 2 Timothy 3.16, which I think is one of the most famous defenses for sola scriptura, which just says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You know, that was presented to me as 
a defense, one of the chief defenses for sola scriptura, because Paul is commending Timothy to cling to scripture. But then you can find, as you've already mentioned, numerous other verses that commend the early Christians to look at the traditions and and not just written down instructions, right? Yeah, and and in fact, even in Paul's correspondence with Timothy, he points out the role of tradition to Timothy. He says, take what you have heard from me, notice heard, and pass it on to trustworthy men who will be able to teach others also. And so he's discussing, and this is in 2 Timothy, which Paul is writing just months before his death, and he knows his death is coming. So he's giving Timothy his final exhortations, um, and it, it the principles he's articulating right here are meant to be applied in the post-apostolic age, at least after Paul's death. And so if you if you look at what he's telling Timothy in this passage, he's talking about the passing down of apostolic tradition in oral form, not in written form. He says, take what you heard from me, that's an oral link, teach it to other men, that's an oral link, who will be able to teach others also, that's an oral link. So this is oral transmission, and it's across multiple generations. It starts with Paul's generation, now he's directing Timothy to take those traditions, and Timothy is a member of the next generation of teachers, and teach other men who are trustworthy. That's a third generation of teachers who will be able to teach further men. That's a fourth generation of teachers. So this is Paul arranging for the passing down of apostolic tradition orally through multiple generations extending into the post-apostolic age. You know, I, I think of—and that's, that's a fantastic illustration, that, that many links in this chain. Obviously, Paul didn't intend to just write down everything and pass on his writing. He makes it quite clear— yeah, if, if Paul had if if Paul meant it all to be just passed down in written form in scriptural form, he would have said, "Give him copies of my writings," and he doesn't say that. If we're defending, if and I, this is the point that I came to as an evangelical, which I, you know, made was one of the catalysts for me leaping into the arms of the Catholic Church. Was if we're defending sola scriptura, we need to have actual defenses of that, and what we find are verses that we're trying to fit into that kind of paradigm, but an equal number of verses, I'd argue, I'm not sure if you'd argue the same thing, but more verses on the other side that talk about the tradition versus just the scripture. I mean, we're we're not finding these plainly obvious verses that say, hey, I'm writing this down, make sure you pass this writing on to the next uh, generation. And you certainly don't find what you need to find, which is verses indicating that in the post-apostolic age, people are to use Scripture only. And that's a problem, because if if uh, if you look at the doctrine of sola scriptura, you have to prove every doctrine by Scripture alone. You're going to have to prove that one by Scripture alone, and you can't, which means it doesn't meet its own test. It's a self-refuting doctrine. Yeah, I think this was my favorite part of your new book, The Bible is a Catholic Book, and I think I nudged my wife uh, in bed and said, look at this, you got to read this, because you, in, I think, the most succinct way, I think it was maybe a paragraph or less, you use that very simple way of explaining how sola scriptura is a self is you know, a self-defeating doctrine, because you can't find that doctrine in the one place where it needs to be found, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a 
it's a self-refuting statement like um, all truth is relative. Well, is that supposed to be relative? If it is, then that must mean there are some absolutes, in which case not all truth is relative. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very eye-opening to see it put so succinctly. You know, it, it reminds me of, and I think it was Dale Alquist, who I believe is also a convert to Catholicism, and, and mm-hmm. he, he's a... Uh, he, writes a lot about G.K. Chesterton, and I think he was imagining, I think he was writing an, kind of an imaginary um, narrative of Chesterton's conversion, because Chesterton is also this famous convert, um, very, very famous Catholic writer, who I know lots of Catholics, myself mm-hmm. included, are, are deeply influenced by. But Alquist was imagining Chesterton looking at, uh, you know, a Catholic, like a procession in, in mass or something and seeing the different elements, seeing, seeing the incense and going, oh, that's rubbish. And then seeing the, um, the statues in the church and going, oh, that's rubbish. And seeing the vestments and, oh, that's rubbish. But then gets to the, the priest or the deacon elevating the Bible to read the gospel and he goes, oh, but I'll take that. And, you know, the, the illustration, it struck me very deeply as an evangelical, the, because the illustration is all these other things that the Catholic Church does, well, that's all rubbish, but, but we want the Bible. The Catholics have the Bible, and we want just that part. But it's all mm-hmm. part and parcel of the same procession as Chesterton imagines, as Alquist imagines that Chesterton would have seen it, right? Yeah, and even though this is an imaginary exercise, so this didn't really happen in G.K. Chesterton's life, so far as you and I are aware. Um, There certainly are a lot of Protestants who will look at things like uh, incense in church and and you know dismiss it as oh that's this catholic addition thing or statues in church and say oh that's this catholic thing that they've added well if you know your bible um there were statues of the inhabitants of heaven in the temple god commanded the israelites to make them there were in fact two statues of cherubim that were part of the atonement lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and there were additional statues of them that were giant ones that uh, flanked the uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And so the at the time, you know, Christ hadn't yet come and, and died and opened the gates of heaven to the righteous dead. So the angels were the only ones in heaven, apart from occasional exceptions like Elijah. And uh, But they did have statues of the inhabitants of heaven in the temple. It's thus entirely natural, now that humans have been admitted to heaven in a broad-based way, to have statues of human saints as well as angelic saints in church today. Similarly, incense. Incense is clearly used in the temple in the Old Testament, and it's depicted as being in use in heaven in the book of Revelation. So uh, incense is another thing that is not something Catholics dreamed up. It's something that's actually been part of the heritage of the true religion since before the time of Christ. Uh, what a lot of people don't even realize is so is holy water. That's another one that's often viewed as some kind of Catholic invention. But actually, there are regulations in the Torah um, for the use of holy water in a particular situation. Yeah, and these are all things that are part of this tradition the Church has been passing on. And the Bible is, uh, as this 
narrative imagines. The Bible is just one piece of that tradition. It's a very important piece, obviously. It's not, uh, you know, incense is not as as important in our faith life. I w- I wouldn't think as the as the scriptures, but it is no. it is part of that tradition that's been passed on. So. It's it's interesting to reject all those other things, but then to keep this one thing that was part of the same tradition to collect it and pass it on. Yeah, and I think even even though the account you know from Dale Alquist was uh, imaginary, there it does reflect the views of a lot of people who will rubbish things like statues or holy water or incense in church, but. Those are all actually quite biblical, and you shouldn't be rubbishing stuff like that that has such biblical precedents. So one of the great misconceptions that non-Catholic Christians have, and I had this certainly, and I I know a lot of people who who continue to have this, is that the Catholic Church added these books to the Bible. Um, But in fact, as, as you talk about, Jesus and the Apostles seems to strongly endorse a version of the Bible, of the Old Testament scriptures, which had these so-called extra books. Can you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah, so at the time in in the first century, and this is, if you read older scholarship, it's going to say other stuff, and I talk about that in The Bible is a Catholic Book, and I show why the older scholarship is wrong. Um, but if you look at competent recent scholarship, it is uh, widely accepted among scholars that there was not a closed canon of the Jewish scriptures at the time of Jesus, not in not not in Palestine or anywhere else. There was one group, the Samaritans, who um, could or could not be considered Jews, depending on how you want to look at it. That did seem to have a fixed canon that was limited to just the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You will also find some of the church fathers saying the same thing was true of the Sadducees, who were prominent in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, and there are some indications in the New Testament that would tend to support that, but there are also counter-arguments. And so the exact books that the Sadducees considered scriptural are considered unclear. They may or may not have had a closed canon. But when you look beyond them, they were not a very big movement. When you look beyond them, you find other groups of Jews that had different ideas about what belonged in the Jewish scriptures. The Pharisees had a much broader canon that loosely corresponds to what you'll find in a modern Jewish Bible or a modern Protestant Old Testament. But even then, there were disagreements. There were certain books that not all Pharisees accepted, um, like Ezekiel and Esther and um, uh, a few others. There was also a book that some uh, later rabbis, who were, the rabbis are the descendants intellectually of the Pharisees, um, that some later rabbis did include as scripture, the book of Sirach, um, which is not in a modern Jewish Bible or a modern Protestant Old Testament. You also can look at the Essenes, or at least the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are assumed to be Essenes. They seem to accept all of the books of all the same books that the Pharisees did, except for Esther, because Esther had a, a different calendar than the one the Essenes liked. And the calendar was incredibly important uh, 
to the Essenes. One of their big criticisms of traditional mainstream Judaism was that uh, it messed with the sacred calendar. And so uh, you had a controversy about, well, like what would happen if Passover falls on a Sabbath? You know, um, because you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, but you need to kill the Passover lamb, and that's work. Um, And you need to cook the Passover lamb, and that's work, and you're not supposed to cook on the Sabbath. So what do you do if Passover falls on a Sabbath? Well, according to the mainstream uh, opinion, what you do is you move the celebration of Passover a little bit from the weekly Sabbath so that they don't conflict. Well, that drove the Essenes crazy. They thought, no, you cannot move the feasts. They have to occur on exactly the day they fall. And, well, it turns out Esther supports the kind of calendar they didn't like, and so it seems that they rejected the book of Esther. But then they accepted some books that the Pharisees don't appear to have accepted, like First Enoch and Jubilees, which is a kind of rewritten edition of Genesis and part of Exodus. Um, So they had some additional books that they thought were Scripture that other Jews we don't have strong evidence for. Then you have the, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which was a translation apparently begun in Alexandria, Egypt, where there was a large Jewish community, and it included all of the books that the Pharisees tended to accept, including Sirach, and several other ones, uh, which we now today call the Deuterocanonicals. Um, If you look at the New Testament's attitude towards the Septuagint, it's extremely positive. We have, um, you know, multiple instances, depending on how you count them, there's a two or three hundred, but um, multiple instances where the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament. And scholars have uh, looked at those quotations and said, okay, which version of the Old Testament is this quotation based on? Is it a quotation of the Septuagint, or is it a quotation that's a Greek translation of the Hebrew original or the Aramaic original in some passages? And when you crunch the numbers, it turns out 90% of the New Testament's quotations of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. So it's clear the New Testament authors did not have any problem with the Septuagint. It's It's the version they overwhelmingly quote from. And it includes these additional books. And they never say things like, by the way, guys, even though we're using this translation for convenience, stay away from these other books. They're not actually Scripture. They never give a warning like that. In fact, they appear to allude to the deuterocanonical books. Um, There's a famous passage in Hebrews 11 where uh, it refers to an event that is only recorded in the deuterocanonical book of 2 Maccabees. And some of Paul's discussion in the early chapters of Romans seems to be based on the Book of Wisdom, which is another one of the Deuterocanonical books. Uh, Even Jesus himself. Now, in the Gospel, sometimes people will say, did Jesus quote the Septuagint? And the real answer is we don't know, because we don't know how much Jesus talked in Greek. I mean, if he was always preaching in the standard language of Aramaic, then um, he would have quoted from the Targums, or Targumim, which were the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament. But 
the New Testament authors do attribute to Jesus words that are found in the Septuagint. So when Matthew's writing, he um, and he has Jesus quoting the Old Testament, like let's say in the temptation in the desert. You know, he's quoting Bible verses back to the devil. You're going to find those in the Septuagint. So they have no problem putting the words of the Septuagint on Jesus's lips. Now you could say that's you know, a matter of convenience, because that's the translation their own Greek readers are familiar with. And that could be true. He could have been talking to the devil in Aramaic. But if you look in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when he teaches the Lord's Prayer, he follows it up by underscoring the point that if you want to be forgiven, you need to be willing to forgive. And that's a point you're not going to find anywhere else in the Old Testament except... Sirach. And so Jesus himself seems to allude to the book of Sirach. At least he's, at a minimum, he's stressing the same concept that's in the book of Sirach. So we don't, we do see in the New Testament a very high positive view of the Septuagint, and we don't see warnings about, oh, by the way, don't use these certain books. And because they didn't issue warnings, Christians naturally adopted the Septuagint as, you know, the standard Greek version of the Old Testament, including the Deuterocanonical books, and they went basically unchallenged. There were individuals here or there who didn't uh, accept all the Deuterocanonicals or who had other ideas about exactly which books should count as Scripture. But it wasn't until the time of the Reformation that you had a major movement saying, we don't want the Deuterocanonicals. And so rather than adding to Scripture, if any if anybody did anything mathematical with the canon, it wasn't Catholics adding to Scripture. It was folks in the Protestant movement who subtracted from it. You know, that's such a profound point that you make, and you do a fantastic job in the book, again, of unpacking the history of this and how that unfolds. I just find that really fascinating because if I am, I mean, for one thing, you'll find, and I've I've had some listeners write into the show, I had your friend Rod Bennett on the show a few weeks back talking about uh-huh. a similar topic, and a bit, a bit of a deep dive into the Old Testament and the Septuagint, and some I had some listeners write in to say things like, um, well, there are other lists of canons that don't include those books that you can find in, in church history. But I think what you're saying is, well, that might exist, but overwhelmingly the church uh, said, no, this is the canon we're reading. Right. Um, it was clear that, and this is clear from a variety of perspectives, but one of them is in beginning in the late third century, in the late fourth century, we have a number of councils. These were local councils. They weren't ecumenical ones. But we have this series of local councils, both in Rome and in North Africa, that all promulgated basically the modern Catholic canon. And uh, the thing that's significant about a council is it represents the view of a region, not just a single bishop. So you have these councils representing regions where the where the modern Catholic canon was accepted. So it's clearly broad based. Um, also, when we look at uh, codices containing the entire Bible, they include the Deuterocanonicals, and they include it without any warnings, like this book isn't really scripture, but it's valuable to read. Um, you will find Protestant Bibles that do that, but you don't find the ancient codices doing that. Uh, but because these the church had not had 
um, had not issued an infallible interpretation of exactly what is Scripture yet, there was some room for freedom of opinion, and you will find individuals here or there who have different opinions. The Church hadn't settled the question definitively yet. And actually, that's uh, sometimes baffling for folks in the Protestant community. How could the Church go hundreds of years without a, a certain knowledge of exactly what books are in Scripture? And it's actually a question that only has urgency if you're using sola scriptura. Because if you're supposed to use scripture and scripture alone to form your doctrine, then you need a, pre a precise knowledge of exactly what counts as scripture. Because if you include even one non-scriptural book in scripture, you, you know, innocently by mistake, you are adding to the word of God and feeding false information into your doctrine. And if you omit even a single book that belongs in Scripture, you are amputating the Word of God, and you are omitting data from your theology that God meant to be in there. And so if you use Scripture alone, the question of the canon becomes absolutely urgent. But if you're not using sola scriptura, if you can also fall back on tradition and on the teaching authority of the Church, on the magisterium, then you don't have to worry in the same way, because you're not meant to look to Scripture alone, and so you can look to these other uh, resources as well. If a difficult question isn't settled by Scripture, maybe tradition can shed light on it. Or if it's really if what Scripture and tradition say is puzzling, and a new question arises about it, the magisterium can settle it if it's needed. And so the Church's magisterium didn't have a need to settle the canon infallibly until there was a major movement that was challenging part of the canon. And so it, it's kind of a little bit like dominoes falling. You have Protestants getting excited about the idea of sola scriptura. That's the first domino that falls over. That then makes the question of the canon of scripture urgent, and they're starting to reject part of the traditional Christian canon, and that then requires the church to settle the issue infallibly. Um, so it's easy to see, and all that you know gets started by the printing press. So it's easy to see how the printing press starts this chain of dominoes in a, into effect. Yeah, I think one thing that would really have me genuinely, uh, I don't know, paralyzed with 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 fear in a sense, if I were to encounter this thought as a non-Catholic Christian. But if you were to tell me that ninety percent of the quotations from the authors of the New Testament came from the Septuagint, and then me as a Bible-alone Christian didn't have the Septuagint in my canon of, of what I thought was scriptural, I would be a little bit concerned about how I can do my faith with Bible alone. My Bible maybe isn't the complete Bible that Jesus and the apostles would have endorsed, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, how do you know that, that the Deuterocanonicals aren't part of what God meant you to have? Uh, given the New Testament's attitude towards the Septuagint and the historic acceptance of it by the vast majority of Christians. That should give anybody uh, who doesn't accept the Deuterocanonicals significant pause. So should the, the fact that some books of the Old Testament, not just the Deuterocanonicals, but others like Ezekiel um, and Esther were disputed, and so were some books of the New Testament— like James and Second Peter and Second and Third John and Revelation, 
um, all and Hebrews. All of those were disputed by some in the early church who didn't think they were Scripture. And there were other books that some people in the early church did think were Scripture that aren't in our modern Bibles, like First Clement and Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas. I mean, the Shepherd of Hermas is even presented in the form of prophecy, um, and the church, early church writer Origen, you know, thought, oh, this is a book of Scripture. Um, it was written by a man who's mentioned in Romans, who was an associate of the Apostle Paul, and he received divine revelations and wrote them down. How do you know that's not Scripture? So if you're not relying on the church to tell you what the canon of Scripture is, what are you relying on, and how can you have confidence in it? <laughs> That's such a—and like I say, that question would really give me a lot of pause if I didn't rely on the church as a Catholic. Okay, I've got one more question for you, and this one is kind of the question to, I think, sum all this up for me, because I've had— Where, where do you buy the book? Yeah. <laughs> that, that'll come. That'll come. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if I can sneak in one more question before that. <laughs> I've had friends, and I've received notes from listeners who struggled with their faith, and even in some cases actually left the faith, because the way they were taught to read the Bible was to simply read it and study the context of the time period and the culture and read some theologians in their faith tradition to gain some insight, but then to ultimately make up their own mind on what scriptures, what the scriptures said and what they meant. And in light of everything that you've unpacked for us about where the Bible came from and how it's the context that it's in, what can we say about the correct way to read scripture? Well, um, one does want to—and this is a topic that we could, you know, devote a series of shows to because uh, it leads directly into the subject of exegesis and proper exegesis. But, um, you know, God gave us intellects for a reason. He expects us to use them. So, yeah, he does want us to read Scripture and use the reason he gave us to do our best to try to figure it out. Um, It needs to be read in context— of the time and the language and the theological tradition that surrounds it. This is something St. Peter alludes to when he says that uh, various people twist the writings of Paul and the other scriptures to their own destruction. And he says the people who do that are the ignorant and the unstable. The ignorant would be people who are not using, who are not aware of the apostolic tradition that needs to be brought to bear in reading Scripture, so you read it like the apostles did. The unstable would be those who aren't willing to cling to the apostolic tradition, even though they know it. And uh, so you need to read it in context of tradition. Also, Christ promised he would guide his church, and he gave uh, it it, it a teaching authority in the form of its leaders. He established authoritative teachers, so he created a magisterium. So you also need to read Scripture in light of what the magisterium has said about it. Uh, And that's basically the Catholic alternative to Sola Scriptura. We should form our doctrine by apostolic Scripture, meaning those written or handed on, by Christ and the Apostles, so that includes the Old Testament because they handed those on to us. We need to uh, form our doctrine by relying on the Word of God as expressed in Scripture and in apostolic tradition and under the interpretation of the teaching authorities that Christ instituted, who are guided by the Holy Spirit and that Christ himself also promised to guide to the end of the world. 
So we can read our, our Bibles, and we're encouraged to. The church encourages us to do that. But it can't simply be to look for the plain meaning of a sentence and try and in- interpret that best we can. There's a, a tradition the Bible is meant to be a part of and and set within, right? Yes, um, and that's obvious from the fact it's written in human language. Um, human language always presupposes a context of knowledge that's outside of it. Um, and uh, so, yes, it, it has to be read in light of, of tradition, and you can't simply look at a single English translation and say, oh, well, I think this means this, and leave it at that. Yeah, when I, when I alluded earlier to this idea I had of the Protestant uh, Protestantism being a broken, a, a poorly designed or a broken system. That was the idea because you can't just look at the Bible, read it for yourself. This just spawns, I mean, thousands of interpretations, right? It certainly it has. Uh, Protestantism as a movement has a great deal of doctrinal diversity. Yes, <laughs> well, more said. than more more than any other uh, Christian movement. Well said. Well, Jimmy, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean it. This book is fantastic, and I hope that every single person listening gets multiple copies for their friends, their family, themselves. Just buy it, put it everywhere in the house so everyone who comes by can look at it and read it, give it away. I love it. It's fantastic, and I mean that. Where can people find it, and where can they find out more about you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for all your kind words. You're extremely uh, generous. Um, in terms of how to find the book, uh, people can go to shop.catholic.com or just go to catholic.com and then click on the shop. It's available there in paperback, and it's also available in bulk. So if you buy a case of them, there's like 20 in a case, they're $3 each. So we really wanted to make it easy for people to hand out this book to others, to leave it in church vestibules, to do book study groups on it and so forth. So you can get it for really cheap if you buy a case. Um, Also, you can go to amazon.com where it's available in uh, paperback and in Kindle, and it's either up now or will be by the Shortly, it's also available in audiobook format in as an audible audiobook. And that's read by an anonymous uh, reader, is that right? Who somehow had access to my podcasting studio right here in my own home, yes. <laughs> well, fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate your time. It's a fantastic book. Everyone needs to pick that up. Thank you so much, Jimmy. God bless you, and God bless your fantastic work you're doing for the Church. Thank you so much, and likewise, and God bless all your listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jimmy Aiken. It was, I think, one of my favorite conversations to have. It was fantastic. I hope you learned something new. I hope you were stretched. I hope you're growing. I hope you're deepening in your faith as a result of this podcast. That would be an incredible blessing to know that. TheCordialCatholic.com for show notes and links to Jimmy's things. I'm at CordialCatholic on Twitter. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook and send your concerns, criticisms, or even positive feedback to CordialCatholic at gmail.com. It all helps me to grow this show better and pushes me to dig deeper and try harder. Thank you so much for all of your feedback. I love, love hearing from you guys. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you find it if you can, and any ratings and reviews go a long way towards pushing this podcast out to new people. 
I really appreciate those. If you want to support this show, it's at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Even $1 a month gets you access to a behind-the-scenes podcast, $8 or more a month. As a thank you gift, I can send you a copy of Jimmy Aiken's fantastic book, The Bible is a Catholic Book. You really, after hearing this interview, must read this book. It's fantastic. Patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Every little bit helps me to be able to focus more on this podcast and not worry so much about the financial burdens that come with doing it. Thank you so much, guys. It is incredibly humbling to do this. Please pray for me. I'm praying for you. See you next week. Thank you for listening, guys, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.